Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today. Father God, thank you for this day and thank you for this chance we have to focus our minds and hearts on you. There are so many things that distract us, so many things that pull our attention away from the gospel, from the place where we can ultimately find life. And so we just want to sit and abide in your presence to dwell with you. Realizing that in all the chaos of the world, the chaos of life, sometimes we need to step out of that chaos and into your peace. So Father, we come with hearts ready to hear, eyes ready to see, to receive all that you have for us this day through your word. And although, Father, we didn't come to receive all of these things from you, we came to be with you. Father, it's true that we will receive from you. There is blessing in your word. There is blessing in community. So we acknowledge our need of you, our desire to be with you, and the beauty of this moment together as a church family. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, guys. Why don't you guys stay standing, if you would? You were just about to sit down. The knees were bending. You know, but I thought maybe we could begin today just with reading the word of the Lord and just giving that some respect and uh, just, just honoring God's word as we hear the text read for us today. And then you can have a seat. I might have one more instruction for you, but I promise I won't make you stand the entire sermon. So uh, just please uh, bear with me. We're going to read from Jonah chapter 3 this morning. My name is Stephen Zarelli, one of the pastors here at Woodside, and I'm so excited to be with you today and to bring you this word from uh, the Lord for all of us in our hearts, certainly as it's resonated in my heart this week. We are closing out a series on the book of Jonah today, looking at chapter 4, but I will begin in chapter 3, verse 10 where it says, when God saw what they did, that is the Ninevites repented, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, should, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What a weird chapter. (laughs) Yet this is the word of the Lord. Before you take a seat, give somebody a little fist bump next to you. We don't do this as often in the COVID pandemic. Say good morning. It's great to see you. It's wonderful to be here in the presence and house of God. And then you can go ahead and have a seat. And for all of you joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. It's always better to be in the room, right? It's better to be here with God's people, but we are thankful that you're with us as well. And if that was really uncomfortable for you to give somebody a fist bump or say hello, you can get your Purell out and just take a bath right now. Um, I'm okay with that, and I'm not even mocking. My wife and I probably would be people. We'd be like, okay, get the stuff out. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jonah chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend our time. We'll take a a quick look at verse 10 of chapter 3 as well. Let me begin this way. A pretty serious, heavy, heavy introduction, but gets us into our topic this morning. It was an early morning of October 16th, 1946 when a Lutheran minister named Henry Jarek visited the few members of his parish in Nuremberg, Germany. The men who showed up were not your typical congregation. They were all about to be hanged that very morning for committing some of the most heinous crimes imaginable during World War II. He walked with each of the condemned men from their cells to the gallows. And when the rope was put around their necks, they were each asked if they had any last words. The first, Joachim von Ribbentrop said, I place all of my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Jarek and said, I'll see you again. The black hood was pulled over his face. The 13 coiled noose was placed around his neck and he dropped through the trap door to his death. Up until he was captured, he was the foreign minister for Adolf Hitler. In the book War and Grace, it was said that Henry Jarek led eight Nazi war criminals to faith in Jesus Christ while he served as a chaplain in this prison. People would say that they committed the worst war crimes against humanity since the ancient Egyptians' famous atrocities. What do you think happened to Jarek when he returned back to America, his homeland? What kind of reception do you think he received? Uh, Probably what you'd expect. He became the target of vicious threats and horrible attacks. After he died, his oldest son found a pile of letters in a secret compartment of his dad's desk. And when he got it open, it was full of unopened letters. When he opened all of them, they were all just hate mail. Hate mail, one after the other after the other, filled with anger of every name you could think of at the time, a Jew hater, a Nazi lover, that he should have been hung right alongside the other men. What do you think? Is it possible that these vile Nazi war criminals could repent? That they should be or could be forgiven? That their souls could be saved? What about the person today who traffics children? What about the extremist who burns people alive or cuts off people's heads? What about the people committing crimes against pregnant mothers and the unborn right now? If you've been reading the news and seeing things from last week, it's hard to even imagine. 
perhaps in Ukraine, in Russia, in Asia, even here. Could God show them compassion? Could people like this be saved right next to you? That you're in the kingdom right next to them. A pastor named Artaxerdia, who deeply influenced this message, said, Extreme expressions of redemption often arouse extreme reactions of resentment. And the question for us this morning is, can God be too compassionate? Is there such a thing? How do you respond to God's compassion? As a church family, how do we respond to God's extreme compassion? And what we'll see today as we close out this series about Jonah the prophet who is at odds with God the whole time is that sometimes the Lord's compassion exceeds our logic. It is so far beyond what we think is just and what we think is right. Sometimes we might even be thinking that it is in fact evil, that it is wrong, that our sense of justice and compassion is more righteous than perhaps even God's. So we're going to dive into that this morning. Maybe you don't see yourself in that tension. Maybe you do. I think we all will by the end. It might sound odd, but compassion is something people have always struggled with. Even in the Old Testament, God had a chosen nation, a people, the Israelites, to be his own possession, the Old Testament scriptures tell us. He gave them a mission. He showed them grace and favor in unique ways so that they might show his grace and glory to the nations around them. And over time, Israel came to think that God's compassion was limited to themselves. They constantly took their election, the fact that God chose them as a people, Even though there was nothing special about them, even though there was nothing unique, in fact, they were a weak nation, a small nation, Uh, but he chose them, and even though they were chosen by God's election, they chose, over time, elitism. Chosen by God, yet choosing self-righteousness. There were exceptions, of course, but for the most part, their attitude towards people outside of their tribe, people of other nations, other people groups, was one of condescension. Has your election in Christ turned into elitism? Has your election in Christ, has the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've given your life to him in faith, you are forgiven by God, but has that actually come to a place in your heart, maybe in seasons, maybe in moments, maybe in days, maybe in months, maybe with certain people, where that now says, well, God's been compassionate to me, but his compassion should not extend to someone else. We'd never say it out loud, but if the thoughts and words in our heads were all put out in the open and all were exposed, I think what we'd see is that we tend to think of ourselves as better than others. And we tend to do it much more frequently than we'd like to admit. In Jonah 4, we come face to face with what could be the most radical example of self-righteous elitism in the entire story of God. We see someone who despised God's compassion. If you've been on this journey with us, you'd expect the opposite. You'd expect Jonah to be the most cheerful prophet who ever lived after what he's been through. I mean, in chapter 2, God's compassion saved him out of the belly of a fish. This crazy, miraculous story. 
He saw thousands of people come to repentance and launched a massive revival in chapter 3. Some would say that what happened in the lives of the people of Nineveh, which we read here, we heard it this morning, 120,000 people or so, might have been one of the greatest evangelistic successes in the history of the world. I mean, you think of Pentecost in the book of Acts where, where Peter gives his sermon and the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. It indwells the lives of believers, this beautiful launch of the church. How many came to faith that day? 3,000, the scripture says. This was over 100,000 people. So This is every preacher's dream. He should be thrilled, Right? He should be leading the cheers, crying, te- crying tears of joy for what just happened in the lives of all, the, all of these people. He should be overwhelmed with the fact that God chose to use him despite his own sin and rebellion. Uh, the fact that God chose to use him anyway and was still using him. But instead, here's what we find. He preaches his sermon. He does what God asks. And then he heads east of the city and he waits Remember in the sermon, God said 40 days and yet this city will be destroyed. And so 40 days, 40 days, destruction's coming, destruction's coming. They repent. God turns from that act of uh, wrath upon them. And this is not a turning like the way we think of turning. He didn't change his mind. It's simply a way of expressing the language so we can understand the hearts within ourselves, not the fact that he's changing as a God himself. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he heads east of the city, it's somewhere in these 40 days, and he waits for God's wrath to wipe out the people that he just preached to. It's sadistic. Repent, repent, repent. Now I'm going to go back, sit in my lawn chair, drink a cold beverage, and wait for fire to come. That's what he desired. He wants to see the fireworks. He wants to see the mushroom cloud. He wants Sodom and Gomorrah part two, bigger and better and louder. So he could say he saw it. It's like someone who wanted a box seat at the Colosseum in ancient Rome just to watch the gladiators kill one another. But instead of a bloodthirsty show, what does Jonah get? He gets nothing. Nothing. And he is so bitter about it that he finally says to God something that he basically said before. When he jumped out of the boat, he was already willing to say, I'm willing to die rather than go do this thing. Finally, now he says it. He says, kill me. Why? Because there's someone he can't stand even more than the Ninevites, and that is a God who is too compassionate. A God who would give mercy to people he thinks do not deserve mercy. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, verse 10 of chapter 3, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. The first question that we'll deal with today, just two, is are you angry with God's compassion? Literally, it means that Jonah believed God's actions were, in fact, evil. We saw a similar thing, similar language in chapter 3, verse 9, when the king of Nineveh said, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So God extended grace 
through Jonah to these people, they repent, they actually respond to that grace, and Jonah sees God's grace as evil. We have to be very careful when we pit ourselves against what we see God doing in the world. Jonah knows what God is like. That's why he's so mad. Because it conflicts with what he is like and what he wants. He wants justice served his way. He wants justice served his way in his timing, with his means and his ends. Verse 2, and so he prays to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I went the other way. Finally, we have an answer to the question that we saw all the way back in chapter 1. Why did Jonah run off the Tarshish, this year-long journey, in the opposite direction of the city of Nineveh? Why did he do it? The storyteller finally lets us see the reason. He runs not because he was given a hard job. Not because he might be persecuted. Not because he would be uncomfortable or, or, or be exposed to discomfort or persecuted, perhaps even killed by these people. None of those things, not that he might suffer. He runs because of his theology. Because of what he believes about God. And that's exactly what the rest of verse 2 shows us. For I knew, he says, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This should sound familiar to us. We find these same ideas throughout the Old Testament. Listen to when God spoke to Moses the prophet on Mount Sinai, very similar language. Chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. God says this about himself. It's divine self-revelation in Exodus 34. And so Jonah is saying, I knew this is what you do. That's why I ran. And that is the great hypocrisy of this whole story. The same hypocrisy from anyone who thinks God's compassion sometimes goes too far. Jonah had received God's gracious compassion himself. And yet he didn't want to see it extended to others. Since he wouldn't end up being digested by a giant fish, he said, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's your right, Father, to save who you choose to save. And he was thrilled when it, when it had to do with him. He was thrilled when he got vomited out of the fish's mouth. He was thrilled when God's compassion came his way. But when it goes to somebody else with different thinking, different ideas, different people group, then what? I'd rather die than see that person receive your gracious mercy. What happens when God chooses to extend his grace and mercy to people that Jonah really doesn't like? They don't hold his values, believe like he does. They might infringe upon his people's freedom. And that's exactly what happened. Remember, Nineveh is within this broader empire called Assyria, and the Assyrians eventually overtook his very own people. They enslaved them. They deported them. They overwhelmed them. They overcame them. They killed them. 
And he was aware of all the situations that might happen while his people were unrepentant, watching these people repent. He knew that that might mean something for his own people where God might bring his judgment to them. So he hates them for it. He doesn't want to see God's compassion extended to them. He doesn't want to see God's mercy given. What about you? What about the transgender woman who just beat your daughter to win the swimming tournament even though her biological gender is male? What about the politician who's passing insurmountable debt onto your kids and your grandkids? What about world leaders sending in sons not of their own to their deaths and destruction of other people? What about TV personalities and celebrities who believe the exact opposite view of reality that what you would call the truth and yet they're influencing millions of people. Maybe it's someone like out there. Most likely it's someone in here. The person who is supposed to be for you but was against you. The person who is supposed to love you but abused you. The person who took advantage of you. The person who lied to you. I have a couple teenagers, a third one coming up. I've shared this with you guys before. Uh, Being a parent of teenagers is a sanctifying process, and maybe I'm the only one who has a hard time extending compassion to my own children, let alone all the people who have lost their minds out in the world. Or maybe I'm the only one who has a hard time extending compassion to those who are already my brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone all the lost lunatics out in the world. Don't we all know that there are, I mean, we all believe this, right? There are, there are sinners, like lowercase s-i-n-n-e-r-s, lowercase sinners. You know, religious people who believe in Jesus, who, who sometimes fail and sometimes fall, there, there's, there's sinners like us, and, and, you know, so there's sinners, but then there's sinners. And I'm so happy there's no sinners in this room. Because none of us are sinners, right? We're all just, you know, we're, we're, we're sinners. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I sin. Yeah, we, you sin. We, we sin. We sin. They're sinners. But none of us are sinners. For those people with their views and their way of life, they don't deserve. They shouldn't receive. And sometimes that gets extended right into our closest relationships. Where it's like, man, I'm so angry because of the way this person's hurt me. Spouse, child, parent, friend, brother, sister, boss. So angry that that all I'm going to give out and cast out is anger towards you. Because God, how could you ever let them get away with it? I just want them to experience a, a little bit of the pain that I feel like I receive from them. God, your compassion can't extend to them right now. That's not fair. Because I, I, I get it, Lord. I'll confess it like I'm a sinner, sure. But they're a sinner. This is what we read about in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 31. It's where Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son. Remember this story? You know, where the father had two sons and the younger took his inheritance early. All of the wealth that was owed to him upon his father's death, he took it early. He runs off. He squanders all of it in wild living and partying. Eventually, he's eating in a pig pen. 
the older brother stays home and does everything he's supposed to do, follows all the rules and works his butt off. The younger one comes to his senses. He's returning home. The father sees him, runs to meet him, embraces him, and kisses him, and puts a robe upon him, and puts a signet ring on his hand, and then throws him a massive party. He says, my son, he was lost. Now he's found. And the older brother comes and says, how dare you? Do you know what he has done? Your compassion, Father, has gone too far. See, it should actually be called the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. That's a better title. The younger brother fell into sins of passion, of his appetite, of the flesh. The older brother fell into sins of attitude, of approval, of self-righteous elitism. Both are lethal. Both are in need of God's grace. The only difference is that one of them, the younger one, knows it, and the other one has no idea. Completely blind. So who is the real prodigal in that story? The older brother is the one who looks at his dad, and he says, there are sinners, and they're sinners. I'm this, and he's that, and he doesn't deserve your mercy. He's furious. He's furious just like Jonah was furious. He thinks it's possible to take compassion too far. When our minds travel down this road, it always reveals the same truth, that we've lost a sense of our own depravity. That's where it goes. That's what it shows. Whenever those thoughts come into your life, why doesn't God do this to them? They don't deserve my compassion. They don't deserve my forgiveness. They don't deserve his mercy. Whenever we walk down that road, it is because we have lost a sense of our own depravity, our own sin. You have lost the miraculous mercy that God gave you. That God demonstrated to you. And this was Jonah's problem. So verse 3, therefore, he says, that means by virtue of who you are, now, right now, O Lord, in this second, in this moment, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. God, if these people are with you, then I don't want to be with you. If he's in and she's in and they're in, I'm out. Jonah is out of control with his anger. There's no way with eternity in mind he could actually believe what he's saying. We see him at his worst right here. And I'm glad that I don't see you at your worst. And I'm glad that you don't see me at my worst. My children today are serving at the Troy campus. They were signed up to be in the kids' ministry. My wife, Katie, she's signed up to sing today, so they weren't able to be here today. So I sat my children down yesterday morning and said, you're going to hear my sermon anyways. <laughs> and so I read it for them, and my son was slouched in his chair, half asleep like a teenager. And I was just, I was like sensing the anger coming up in me while I'm preaching about compassion. And I said to them, you know, I've seen each one of you at your worst. And the truth is, they've seen me at mine. And anyone in this room who lives under the same shelter as you, most likely has seen some of your worst moments too. 
So what attitude and posture do you have towards them? There's so many of us in this room. There's so many people in, our, in, in the church today that are consumed by the destruction of relationships that they cannot even fathom or imagine extending compassion to those closest to them. And that's the very opposite of the way of Jesus. So we see Jonah right here at his very worst. And this is what's so beautiful about it. What does God do with this prophet who doesn't share his heart? He doesn't believe what God believes. He doesn't actually have the heart that God has in this moment. He doesn't have any consistency with God's will in this moment for these people, for this area, for this land, for this city, for any of it. But what does God do? God had already delivered him once. Couldn't God say like, man, if you didn't get the hint and didn't get the point, when I saved you out of a, the belly of a great fish, or when I saved you from drowning even before that, if you didn't get it then, you're never going to get it. He didn't do any of that. What does he do? He extends Jonah the same exact compassion. Even when we lack it, we still receive it. Thank you, God. He shows compassion by asking Jonah a question. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So let me just ask that of you this morning. Where's, where's anger get you? How's that been working? Where's that land? All that anger that comes out, all that anger that explodes onto the scene in your relationships when the doors are closed, in your marriage, with your children, at work, wherever it might be. Maybe it's just within your own head. Where does that lead you? Where does it take? What good does that actually do? As the Lord says here, do you do well to be angry? I mean, it never lands at a good place. You're always miserable. Even if the person that you're yelling at and angry about relents of everything and they're like, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right, you still feel like garbage. It doesn't work. And there are many of you today, if we're just being honest and we're just having that chat and it was just us in the room, you need delivered from anger. You need to lay that down. I know I've had to at times. You've got to let it go. You can walk out of this room this morning still in chains. Or you can walk out free. And if you know Christ, that freedom's yours already. But it's a choice that you have to make. It's something that you have to do. Do you do well to be angry? Does that get you anywhere? Does that represent the life that God intended? We know the answer. What would you have done if you were God here? What would the older brother have done if he saw the younger walking down the road in Luke 15? God is everything Jonah accused him of being. He is gracious, slow to anger, outrageously compassionate to people who deserve the complete opposite. And God doesn't abandon Jonah, blast Jonah, condemn Jonah, and neither has he abandoned or blasted or condemned you. So even if you're in that place, in your blindness, in your anger, in your lostness, and everybody around you sees it, experiences it, and is, is actually dealing with the repercussions of it, even in that place, God is still there with his compassion squarely on you. 
And that is the thing that ought to drive us back to his compassion for others. Think about the first sin. When, what did God do with Adam and Eve? I mean, it, <laughs> he created the whole universe, right? I mean, it's just poof, and, and we have the galaxies. I mean, just galaxies, and it just blows our mind to even begin to comprehend the expansiveness of the universe. And he speaks, and there's the earth, and he speaks, and there is life, and he speaks, and there are seas, and sun, and stars, and all these things. And he speaks, and then he moves with his hands, he creates humanity, and they both fall into sin. If I'm God, I'd probably be thinking, well, I mean, I have eternal, expansive you can't exhaust it power. I'm omnipotent. These two didn't work out. I'll just try again. I mean, it only took like a day. As we would count it. But what does he do with them? He doesn't get rid of them. He says, where are you? It's just the same here when it says that he turned from from he, he relented from bringing this destruction upon the city. It's the same idea. It, where are you? Was he confused on where they were? Were they, were they, Adam and Eve, just like amazing at playing hide and seek? He's like, I lost them. No, the questions expose our hearts and our position in relationship to God. That is why they are posed and why the expressions are given. God is helping them see. After Cain murders Abel, where's your brother? Jesus asked Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? Jesus asked Peter after his denials, do you love me? Jesus asked Paul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? The questions help us see. It's a gracious, patient response. And so here's what we need to hear this morning. What question is God asking you? He's asking it to help you see. It's his compassion. Where are you blind? Where do you need to see? Are you angry with his compassion? That's the first question. Here's the second. We won't spend as much time here this morning. Have you accepted your equal need of God's grace? Good storytellers use flashbacks. And when we're listening to a masterclass in storytelling like we are here in Jonah, that's what we find, actually. Verses 5 through 11, so the way that this book ends, those last six verses are a flashback. The book ends with a flashback. Part of Jonah's message in chapter 3 was to say, Nineveh, you've got 40 days before God deals with you. Then, sometime near the end of the 40 days, we see what happens in verses 1 through 4. So towards the end of that time when nothing happens, God and Jonah have this conversation. Well, verses 5 through 11 are a flashback sometime before that final conversation while Jonah's waiting. It's during that period of time. Why does he go backwards? Why does the author go backwards and paint this picture? What's the reason for this order? I think it's because the author wants the last question of verse 11 to be the question that repeats itself in our ears over and over and over. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's pick it up in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah probably made a shelter, but not one that gave him much comfort, at least for long. So what does God do? 
What does God do for Jonah while Jonah is sitting on a hillside waiting for God to rain down fire and destroy a huge city? When he's in his deepest moment of rebellion and anger, what does God do for him? God actually provides comfort for him. But it's comfort to teach, as we'll see in a second. He provides for him, and it produces this like roller coaster of emotions. And God sets the whole thing up. Look at verse seven. But when the when da, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, "It is better for me to die than to live." But God said to Jonah, "Do you do well to be angry?" Same question as before, but now a different referent for the plant. And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This all happens, friends, in a few hours from when the dawn came up the next day to when the sun rose. So Jonah gets heat exhaustion. And in a matter of hours, he goes from being exceedingly glad, full of joy, anticipation, excitement, eating his popcorn. And now he's angry enough to die. Why? Because he didn't have any shade? Well, follow the text. Notice what's happening. Verse 6, God appoints a plant. He rejoices. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. God appoints an east wind. Verse 8, now he wants to die. His roller coaster of emotions has everything to do with his own needs. Him not getting what he wants. Yes, this isn't just a problem with children it's adults too it's all about him and here's the principle self-centered people are rarely happy people and what is the fruit of the spirit love joy what did jesus say my joy will be in you my joy i've given to you if we do not have the joy of christ in us We've allowed something or someone to steal it away from us, and so often it's because of our own self-centeredness. Self-centered people are rarely happy people. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which... There are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So here we come to that last phrase. This is an example of an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's like when Jesus says that God closed the lilies of the field. And so since he closed the flowers of the field, how much more is he going to clothe you? If he feeds the birds of the air, how much more is he going to feed you? Same idea here. So humans, image bearers of God, they have the highest value. And animals have some value because they have living breath in their lungs. Plants have the lowest value. God is saying if you have compassion for life at the lowest value, the plant, you care a whole lot about this plant. You didn't make it grow. You didn't create it. You didn't water it. You did nothing to care for it. You haven't watched it grow. It just came to be, and you're so worked up about this plant. It was was there one minute, and yet gone the next. If you have that much compassion for a plant, then how much more compassion should you have for life at the higher levels? For cattle, for people. And basically, here's what he's saying. Jonah, the plant, 
the plant, a, a plant mattered most to you. People matter most to me. That's what God was saying. I created all these people. I cared for every one of them, every animal in those herds with living breath in their lungs, 120,000 people, 120,000 eternal souls with breath in their lungs. And the point is sometimes stuff and things becomes more important to us than people. I wonder if the Lord would have a word for the American Evangelical Church. If he might say of many, stuff and things you care about much. But do you care about people? Man, so much time, so much effort, so much energy expanded over and over to get stuff, to get more stuff, to get more things. You care so much about stuff and things, you're going to leave this place, think about things and think about that and probably shop on Amazon this afternoon and blah, 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 blah. Like, do we care more about that than people? And again, we don't take it to extreme legalistic places like all of that. Like we have to consume. We're human beings. We, we need to eat or we die. So that's normal. But yet, do we have this line that we cross? In this moment, people didn't really matter to Jonah. What about you? One commentator said it this way. A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. Do you think God is too compassionate? As we close this morning, friends, you might say, yeah, yeah, but, but th- there are sinners. But there, there are sinners. No, friends. There's just Sinners. There's just sinners, and you're one, and I'm one. God's compassion has always had a global perspective. Jesus said the greatest prophet who ever lived was not Moses or Jonah or Elijah or Elisha. It was John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, referring to Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. God's compassion is available to you. But not just to you. It's available to everyone, everywhere, every kind. Have you received it? That is our prayer. That even today, if you're joining us online, if you are here in this room, that you would pursue Christ and know that salvation alone is found in him. Salvation is only found in him. And you don't want to be at the end of that time when your time's up, having not received that compassionate mercy through God's given sacrifice for you. It's, it's free. It's a gift of grace. It's yours to receive through faith. It's a hard life. It's a new life, but it's an eternal life available to all. And if you have received Christ, it should change our disposition and our attitude. Our attitude should move. If you, are, if you came in here this morning and you had one of those weeks where you just had a lot of anger in you, then hopefully through this morning you can leave this place removing that anger and that anger as you consider God's compassion given for you through Christ his son on the cross. That you would be able to leave this place not with anger but with joy with gratitude, with thankfulness. Not carrying a heavy yoke, but a light one. 
C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, it is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. That's the type of compassion we must have. Father, may it be so of us here today. Father, thank you for this day. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here. I pray for all those listening and joining online. First, I pray for those who have not received your mercy. Father, you have sent compassion incarnate in the person of Jesus. And if anyone in human history, recorded history, ever had the right to say, I have done nothing but work for you, God, and they have done everything in opposition to you, God, I don't deserve this. It was him. And yet for the joy set before him, what a crazy thought, Father, for the joy set before your son, he endured the cross. He knew what was to come through that act of obedience. He knew the love that would be expressed. He knew the salvation that would be made available, and it's available to every single person here. So, Father, if there be any who have not yet received your mercy, may they say, like the Ninevite king, have mercy on me, God. May you turn from your anger towards my sin. Thank you for Jesus. We know the rest of the story who died for that sin and rose again in victory that I might live. I give you my life. And for everyone who has made that decision, Father, Father, I pray that we would turn from our anger and turn towards gratitude and thanksgiving. I pray that you would restore marriages today, that you'd restore relationships today, that you'd help people to suck down their pride for a moment and say, I'm, I'm giving this up. I'm not chasing this any further. I know that I have received the extravagant mercy of God, and that is what he desires that I share with others. So, Father, do your work with your people. Help us to follow that beautiful way of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.